when McConnell was shedding a tear on the Senate floor during the impeachment trial, he had already announced that he was going to vote to acquit. And the reason he did that is that if he had voted to convict, he would not have been the leader of that caucus anymore. And he is desperate to become the longest serving Senate majority leader in American history. They could have convicted Trump and ended his reign in the party and as a president. And so now we have a lot of problems left to solve. <laughs> and, and it's not just about a former president. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is David Winkler, a thoughtful political analyst in Colorado who specializes in public opinion, data analysis, and progressive strategy. David has helped turn Colorado blue. He worked as research director for Project New West slash Project New America before going out on his own, advising clients on public affairs. He got involved in politics very young, speaking at the White House after the Columbine High School shootings, and has a lot to say about politics in our time. He talked about rugged thinking, the Stockdale paradox, the activist dilemma, and the secret to winning a Senate majority. You'll want to listen. So, first my sponsor, then my interview with David Winkler. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. David? Yes. Welcome. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Great to be with you on the great battlefield. Um, here is a, a very brief biography, and then we can talk more if you want about anything. I consider myself to be a, a patriotic American that dedicated his professional life to working for freedom, peace, and prosperity. I have worn a lot of different hats in my two decades of pushing the U.S. political system where I want it to go. And a few of those hats are as follows. I'm one of only a few teenagers that's given a speech at the White House and in front of a huge crowd on the National Mall before voting for president. I've started and grown several successful businesses and nonprofits. I've knocked on over 10,000 strangers' doors, <laughs> worked behind the scenes of U.S. elections at nearly every level, mostly in red and purple states. My home state of Colorado, been a part of flipping that blue, quote unquote, three times. In that course of that journey, I've probably paid for more public opinion polling than almost anyone in the history of the Democratic Party. I've been fortunate to collaborate with teachers and billionaires, janitors and presidents. In the words of country musician Eric Church, I've had some hits and a few big misses. So I believe we're at a turning point in history. 
And this is this wonderful, young and fragile civilization called the United States has accomplished great things while making many mistakes. And Nathaniel, you built this fascinating and wonderful community with this podcast that has given me so much insight to improve my work and my life. And the people who've appeared here have done so much good for causes that we care about, even when we disagree. And so I haven't given an on-the-record interview in five years. You can tell I'm a little nervous, but I decided it was time for a conversation, and I hope that listeners uh, find something useful. Well, I really do appreciate you taking the time. And anyone who thinks that coming on my podcast is worth being nervous about, I I love that idea because you might think it matters. And it's honestly a pretty small forum, but I do get very good guests. And I'm pleased to add you to that list. Your quick bio, as it were, mentioned right up front that you are one of the few teenagers to give a speech for a wide audience at the White House. And that, I'm sure people would like to know, what were the circumstances that allowed that to come about? It was uh, not something I planned for very long or, or even something I worked for for very long. Interesting day in history, July 15th, 1999. Frankly, a day that I, I sort of thought had been lost to the dustbin until someone pointed out this clip was on C-SPAN a few years ago. And um, when I was a senior in high school in Denver, a couple of teenage terrorists decided to attack their high school across town. Their goal was to uh, top the Oklahoma City bombing that had happened a few years earlier. The trial had been in Denver, um, but their, their bomb didn't work. Uh, and so it turned into a school shooting that folks will know as Columbine the name of the high school, also the state flower of Colorado. Um, the National Rifle Association was having their convention in Denver uh, scheduled about two weeks later, and Charlton Heston's billboard was up all around town. It was supposed to be sort of a, a coronation for a political agenda. They were pushing pretty hard. And I had grown up around violence in Denver um, and had paid a little bit of attention to the NRA and, and the debates of the 90s. Uh, mostly by watching, uh, you know, a Simpsons episode and reading the newspaper. But there was an opportunity for young people to get involved uh, in trying to stand up for for peace and against violence. And that's uh, what we did. I joined with a bunch of other young people in Colorado to demand that our government help keep us safer and uh, not let things like that happen again. And a couple months after that incident happened, uh, decided, why don't we get a bunch of young people and go to Washington and demand that they pay attention to us. Over the course of about three weeks, we, we pulled together a group of around 100 teenagers from every corner of Colorado, one from Wyoming, folks who had survived Columbine, folks who had lost more friends than they could count in Denver, folks from the suburbs who hadn't been affected other than emotionally. Um, and we went to Washington, not sure anyone would pay much attention to us. And next thing you know, we were confronting a congressman on the steps of the Capitol who welcomed us to town but disagreed with us. It, it became the lead story on national media, on the homepage of AOL. The White House called and said, you know, we'd like to have you visit tomorrow and someone should give a speech. So uh, me and a co-organizer of the trip flipped a coin and I won the coin flip and I helped draft that speech with a few others, um, went to the White House and in the state dining room, President Clinton met with our group for an hour, taking questions privately. 
And one of the things I remember from that was um, him using a metaphor from war, talking about how changing things in Washington takes a lot of time and effort, like an aircraft carrier takes 45 minutes to make a single turn. Um, and after this private meeting, we went down the steps of the South Lawn and the president delivered some remarks and I gave a short speech calling for change. We went to the Capitol Hill after that, where we were uh, stonewalled by Republicans who were in charge of the House and Senate, but a number of Democrats, a number of Republicans agreed with us. Um, and, you know, that was a point in time where there was a large debate about that issue that continued for most of the next year and a half. That day in D.C. was just so inspiring. I, I remember it was about 10 years after the Tiananmen Square massacre, where I had visited a few years earlier um, with my brother, who was teaching English in China at the time. And I thought, what a wonderful country that we live in, where young people can come to the capital and, and not be rolled over by tanks and be listened to, even if not everyone agrees with us. Um, and so I decided to, to organize young people and, and be a part of that movement for a, a whole year before I went to college, went out all across the country from um, you know, schools like Harvard to schools like Columbine. And I think we visited somewhere around 30 states, uh, passed a ballot measure in Colorado, and I realized how much I liked it here and decided to stay for undergraduate work at CU Boulder and um, have been here ever since. It sounds like a life-changing experience, that whole sequence of events there. How, I mean, did it change you a lot? Did it make you a different person? Yeah, in ways that I didn't understand it would at the time. Um, I mean, I knew that it was unlikely to ever have a day like that day again, where I woke up and went to the green room at CNN for a national interview in Washington, had this incredible experience, ended the night in New York preparing to go on the Today Show. Uh, that was kind of an irreplicable journey in a day. Um, and I thought that, uh, you know, it would be possible to make some of these changes that were so incredibly common sense and popular. I just figured it was time to put my shoulder to the wheel at that point. And then the truth is, uh, I was not prepared for how hard it would be, how how much it would be uh, a grind on me mentally to kind of think that we were so close to making that change. And then, you know, several decades later, the country has basically followed a totally different path to where those kinds of incidents happen all the time and we're the the most heavily armed society in human history and just as many kids more or less you know die every day from gunfire as died in that single day i noticed that when parkland happened a bunch of years later that some of the kids there who spoke out were attacked accusations were made that they were actors or the pro-gun right went after them. Did you experience any of that? The Parkland shooting happened 18 years later, um, and so much had changed in, in society. I didn't attend Columbine, and so I know that the students who, who did and had to go back to school a few weeks later and had to go back into the building a few months later, they felt harassed by, I would say, the mainstream media and the tabloid media, uh, but nowhere near the same kind of pressure that the Parkland students were dealing with. And I had a small share of um, stuff that I would say was un unpleasant, but a, a thousandth of what they went through. And, you know, I um, 
this slightly longer story, but I did did try to respond to Parkland in in a way that I could to share some of my lessons and insights, uh, hopefully help them make different mistakes than I did. It was just amazing to watch because they were they were figuring things out that took us months and they were knocking them out in a couple of days. And of course, I you know had different ways I could influence things than than when I was eighteen and tried to do some of those as well. If that day was like really pivotal in your life, were there other days like that? So you know that day, July fifteenth, nineteen ninety nine. I kind of jokingly refer to it as as the day I met uh, Chuck Schumer. And um, <laughs> there's another day, August 28th, 2008, is uh, in my life, the day I met Harry Reid. Um, so the two Senate majority leaders of the Democratic Party in my adult life. Um, but Harry Reid was in Denver for the Democratic National Convention. So um, by that point, I was several cycles into a career as a, as a political operative and organizer. I'd worked on uh, state house campaigns and ballot measures and was... Uh, part of a, a company that was built to understand the voters of the Intermountain West, places like Colorado and Nevada. And uh, I remember, um, you know, another just glorious summer day where so much seemed possible. Um, at the time, of course, we didn't know Obama was going to be the president in a big landslide and have a large majority in Congress. Uh, we were still very nervous about how that was going to play out. I do think that day in particular, you know, echoes in a lot of interesting ways, um, in part because of what happened afterward and uh, some of the uh, successes and mistakes that that both I made professionally and that the Democratic Party had. Um, we were probably, you know, a little bit overconfident in our ability to win elections and our, our demographic future. Um, Obama came to Denver a few months later to sign the rescue package, was signed at the Museum of Natural History where I had my high school senior prom. We sort of didn't tell anyone that that was the largest tax cut in American history. That that message never, never really broke through the American public. Um, and of course, the election of 2010 uh, set the stage for the next decade. And we can talk more about that. I'm still trying to get a little bit of a fix on who you are and what you do from this. So um, you've referenced what I take to be Project New West, which became Project New America. I had Jill Hanauer on. Uh, quite some years ago, I think now, who you must have worked with there. Uh, tell me, like, what was your path from student at University of Colorado to that institution? And what is that? Yeah. So I started working on um, political campaign in, in 2004 for a state house leader uh, candidate named Gwen Green. She eventually was nicknamed the Fighting Granny, and she won her race that year by about 40 votes. Um, and it was so close that I had to learn and understand all the processes around uh, counting provisional ballots and um, what margins require recalls and uh, things that in 2000 were a very big deal. And of course, uh, are, are still a part of our discussion today. Um, when worked for a ballot measure in Colorado that invested in healthcare and education, uh, met some folks on CU campus who started a youth group uh, that's now called New Era Colorado, or I was the first employee there. Uh, a number of those students are now leaders in their own right that folks would know their names, can look them up. Um, and then won a bunch of state house campaigns for the Democratic Party in 2006. That was really the first time Colorado, quote, flipped blue. We had a Democratic governor 
and Democratic House and Senate for the first time in a long, long time. Um, and then uh, right after that, I, I basically became the first employee at Project New West, which was this entity that Jill Hanauer started um, in, in close collaboration with folks like the political operations for Harry Reid and um, Western senators and governors like Bill Ritter, Brian Schweitzer. Um, there were a number of them. And uh, so that effort was was really to build a private think tank to understand what was happening and try to help institutions and organizations like labor unions and environmentalists and reproductive health groups um, and democratic campaign committees and uh, we didn't quite have super PACs, but the predecessors to those helped them understand the voters in the New West. Um, and so we just started doing uh, a lot of polling, a lot of strategy and communications and research into the values, the issues, and the tactics uh, to, quote, win in the West. And you said earlier that you probably commissioned as many or more polls as anybody else. Now, that's one way to learn about the electorate. It's an imperfect way to learn. It's it's an amazing tool. What do you think are some of the things that you did learn about the Western electorate and beyond through that process that stay with you and that people ought to know? There's a whole conversation to have about how you put together a strategy to win elections and the role that polling and data play in those choices. Um, and I think it's actually one of the things as I look back on the last decade that uh, has become pretty common in, in political strategy in both public and private is trying to look at uh, uh, demographic groups and think that you can pretty easily move and change performance and turnout with demographic groups you like uh, without uh, corresponding reactions by other groups. Just for anecdata, like one of the things that was kind of driving change in the West was people moving from other parts of the country for quality of life. And, uh, you know, people would often talk about a participant in a focus group who, uh, a woman in the suburbs of, of Denver, who said something like, you know, I have hiking boots in the back of my car and they are clean because I never go hiking, but I drive around with them because I, I like the idea that I can just quickly get up there and do it if I wanted to. So, you know, if you look at what changes have occurred in Colorado over the, the past couple decades, it was the Electoral College tipping point in 2008 and 12 and was close in 16 and not really even on anyone's map in 20. Um, but underneath the surface, uh, plenty of challenges and heartbreak and close victories. Not a lot of people talk about Michael Bennett's Senate race in 2010. But if you go back and, and look at the coverage of it, plenty of, of the discussion at the time was about uh, the left's ability to mobilize infrequent voters and to uh, persuade suburban independent women uh, on issues like reproductive health care. I think it was the closest Senate race of 2010. Um, but very few people would talk about, you know, Republican women who may have voted against the Republican nominee. And that was probably just as important, even though that was a really tiny slice of Republican women. If you were the first employee at Project New West, tell me about the trajectory of that enterprise over time. How does it change in what it does? Well, so the company, uh, you know, very quickly found a tremendous amount of success, uh, you know, in, in part because of the political environment and the, the region that it was based in, but in part because of the, the model of 
organizing this entity as a company. And our client base grew uh, dramatically from 2007 to 2008 in the presidential year. And then, you know, figure out what's next in, in an off cycle. We realized there's a lot to be done to, to move policy uh, to help elected officials up and down the, the ballot um, outside of the typical election process. This is all within uh, the highest standards of, of legal and ethical work, but I'm talking about you know issue polling that you would do for a legislative agenda and trainings for um, organizations, trainings for uh, elected officials on how to talk to the public or how to use social media. And pretty soon we found this company working all across the country. So some of the first meetings that I remember doing in, in Florida and Georgia were in 2011. By 2012, we were working all across the country and the name had changed to Project New America. It was in some ways kind of like a, an internal 538. We worked with all the pollsters. We were not a pollster, but we worked with all of them. So, you know, I can recognize most of the firms by their crosstabs <laughs> and, you know, have uh, uh, deep relationships with um, researchers at senior and junior level throughout the infrastructure. And as I look back at, at the volume, it's a very unique position to be in. And, you know, plenty of that polling was was pretty good. Um, we used to do autopsies about how the Republicans got the polling wrong back in 2008 and 10 and 12. But it's certainly been a challenge in the last few years. After about 10 years and after 2016, I decided it was time for new challenges and new ways of thinking and doing and have been you know, trying to put the pieces back together from that disaster ever since. Uh, from the disaster of Trump being elected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and does that mean you left Project New America and did other things? What does that mean for your career? Yeah, I, I had a really interesting journey because I never thought I would have the same job for 10 years. Uh, and, and then, you know, just getting my head around both how wrong I was, how wrong the data was, and what role I would have in trying to figure it out. Frankly, because I wasn't at that company, I was able to have a lot more uh, flexibility in figuring out, A, what I wanted to do, and B, what went wrong. So I took a number of different uh, projects and jobs over the last five years, but, you know, the 2018 election was really clarifying for me. At that time, I was actually not in an, an election-specific uh, capacity, but that night in the you know biggest blue wave in a generation, Senator Cory Gardner from my home state and Mitch McConnell were in their office giving each other a thumbs up because they had done what they needed to do to maintain control of the Senate. And there were plenty of projections in private about how difficult it would be for Democrats to ever win a Senate majority again. Ironically, now some of those projections are on the New York Times getting a lot of attention this month, but things that I've known about for several years. And so I, I, I shifted gears, went into uh, private practice uh, again to basically do everything I could uh, to take on the McConnell majority between 2019 and 2020. And that was quite a journey. My goal at the outset was to win 52 Senate seats. Um, so by that measure, you know, it was an absolute failure. Yet winning 50 votes for a Democratic majority leader was a tremendously hard amount of work that took lots of people and lots of money and had returns on that investment to scale that make it one of the biggest in probably world history. The loss in 2016, the presidential, the loss of some key Senate races like Maine in 2020, 
I think it's still somewhat inexplicable to people who aren't close to it and maybe even more so to people who are. What do you think you understand about what happened in those two elections that left us short painfully both times in, in certain key places? So I think Senate elections are very difficult and beating a Senate incumbent is probably the most difficult thing in, in U.S. politics because you have all the geography of a governor's race, all the issues of a presidential race. You don't have the resources of either of those. You don't have the local folks who have as much to gain. If you're worried about pollution or traffic or schools, you know, a senator may be last on your mind as a, as a community member. I've been doing Senate stuff for a long time, but it, it's six-year increments. <laughs> and so everything else is two or four. And most of the people who pay you know, marginal attention to politics aren't thinking six years ahead or, or six years back. That's kind of a, a big view. I'd say you know, on, on the little view, um, Mitch McConnell's team is very good at what they do, and they are playing on a sort of tilted field. And they have a pretty a pretty simple playbook. They are flexible when they need to be, um, and frankly, you know, have have handed Democrats their lunch for a decade until the miracle in Marietta that happened. But between the election in November and the election in January, you know, Mitch McConnell won almost almost everything he cared about over the last decade. The ones he lost that were unexpected were when the that party nominated someone on the fringe or someone who said something stupid, hard to count on that for, for control of the Senate. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, if you go back and look at the modern history, the last 20 years Senate elections, it is full of incredibly close elections in small population states that are determined by lots of things that, that sort of seem random in hindsight, like plane crashes or vacancy appointments or um, something that they said got out like in v Virginia or you know, yeah, it's just, and, and third party, third party impacts are huge too. Um, you know, the, the Senator Merkley, you know, won in 2008 in Oregon by a third party margin. And had that not happened, I'm not sure if Democrats would have flipped that seat until 2020 because these, you know, between the, the midterms and the presidential and how those line up. Um, so there's a lot of reason for, concern. And I think the the recent analysis in the New York Times of projecting forward, basically, you know, somewhere in the low 40s after 2024, it should be a real clarifying moment for people that care about some of the things that your listeners do. You may not agree with all the solutions proposed in, in that article, but uh, it's a time to pursue lots of solutions. So what is your expertise exactly? So I get the sense you're sort of a data analyst and a political consultant. What is it that you're bringing to the space? That's a great, great uh, question that I ask myself frequently. It's not necessarily easy to define. Um, and frankly, I think one of the things that I bring is uh, a, a pretty large and general set of knowledge of, of history and practice in American politics and a set of relationships. Everyone has relationships, but I, I try to work pretty hard on um, knowing lots of people, supporting lots of people, people who look like me, people who don't, people who think like me and people who don't. What we did in, in 2019 and 20 
in the effort to make Chuck Schumer majority leader, like it was pretty clear that the polling was still going to be pretty bad. And yet we still had to go out and operate and try to recruit the best candidates and build the best campaigns and deal with COVID and deal with one impeachment prior to COVID. Part of what I took from that process was an analysis of the 2018 election that pretty widely shared throughout the Democratic Party that it was a singular and narrow focus on healthcare that allowed for success uh, after the GOP moved to repeal the ACA. Democrats largely spent most of their money talking about pre-existing conditions in 2018. The, the House worked out. Senate didn't. We won a bunch of governor's races, didn't win Florida, didn't win Georgia. But we also didn't win South Dakota or Iowa, two races that were roughly 10,000 votes that have basically been lost to most of the history of, of Democratic operatives, even though that was a few years ago. And so I think that's not a bad interpretation of 2018. But an alternate interpretation would be that uh, not only did Mitch McConnell do pretty well, but um, in late October, there was a mass shooting at a synagogue in Squirrel Hill, Pennsylvania, the Tree of Life. And it was an absolutely terrible, horrible event, probably directly tied to some of the rhetoric coming from the right wing, and that it caused uh, the American public to focus on that violence and hate for a critical week right before they made their voting decisions. Um, had they not been focused on that, they may have been thinking more about Brett Kavanaugh and the caravan that, frankly, Trump and, and his team were inciting anger on. So... You know, coming out of that, me thinking in that way, I, I was pretty sure that talking about pre-existing conditions would not be enough in 2020 for us. You know, COVID, of course, changed so many things, but it was obviously a health issue, but also an economy issue. And um, I think at the end of the day, I try to bring resources and insights and relationships that just reflect my lived experience. It is a very strange journey I've been on. And I don't know exactly where it's going to lead, but. You said the first interview you've done in five years. Why have you sort of stayed out of the public eye for that time? And what is it that makes you want to talk a little bit more right now? In part, I stayed out of, of talking on the record because I was so shaken by the mistakes of 2016 and uncertain about what to do. Plenty of people spend their lives trying to get in the New York Times. I was covered when Coors Field opened in 1995 and I was 13. Um, and then, you know, had the exposure we talked about a little later. So it's never been, you know, a huge goal of mine to show up on, on cable TV. But I do think there is a value in trying to kind of put together a relatively uh, concise message <laughs> and a 45 minute podcast is not that, but, um, you know, it's been such a wonderful experience to have this community. I haven't listened to every episode, but I have learned so much, whether it was, uh, Dan Senna in his exit interview from the DCCC saying, you know, that the motto was how many races are in play today. And, th and that was the motto for most of the cycle. That was basically what I took into 2019 or, uh, Deirdre Schiefling saying that her solution to how to keep the country together and how to persuade people to agree with uh, more democratic and progressive positions was basically radical love that you needed to 
people she'd organized in the labor movement who probably were Obama to Trump voters needed to be loved. That's hard to operationalize in our political system. But I, I felt like this was a good forum to come back and connect to. And then even just as we set up this interview, sort of understanding some of the strange and weird connections that you and I have that I wasn't aware of until either this year or a few years ago. So, When I think about former President Trump, part of me is with the people that see him as a wannabe authoritarian ruler a la Putin or some of the other folks around the world, Turkey and Philippines or whatever, and in the worst, you know, a future Hitler. Read every sign of his duplicity in the very worst way. But there's also a part of me that that sees where normal politics still rules in one way or another, and he's not that horribly different from the Republicans before him. What's your take on this guy? How bad is Mr. Trump in your view and how dangerous? You know, when I look through the archives from July of 1999, you can find stories about Donald Trump trying to run for president on the Reform Party ticket. And then he was a Democrat later. And plenty of people who are smarter and more experienced than me uh, in studies of psychology or, or political science or history have weighed in. I've realized that one, one of the things that describes my mindset is a, a philosophy that an epidemiologist talked about where you might see a tree with a, a thousand branches on it representing all the possibilities. And, and the trunk of that tree is sort of like what's most possible, possibilities from good to bad on either side. And the job of in some ways, my mindset, but epidemiology is like, look at the worst possible outcomes and work like hell to trim those branches back. Um, and so I don't think it's worth me spending a lot of time predicting exactly where we're headed, but I do have some pretty dire scenarios that are obvious that others have talked about and think that, you know, we have to work to pair those back. So, you know, the secret plan for how to win a Senate majority and certify the next election. And frankly, like the next Republican president, I hope is someone of, of strong moral character and a constitutionalist and someone who believes in many of the things I do. When that person is elected and who that person is, um, you know, there's a lot of time left to play out. And I certainly hope it's not Donald Trump. What other conceptual models do you use when thinking about politics? All right. So another one that your guest shared is this idea that the asymmetry in the system is that the right wing for them, they're activists and they're donors and the voters with the most power, so to speak, because of the Constitution, all line up uh, in, in this you know Jeffersonian agrarian republic <laughs> with the Senate as such, the urban rural you know, polarization. Um, has not favored those on the left. And, and basically our activist donors and voters don't line up. So we have to dance, is my impression. <laughs> we have to juggle. And that's why it's harder for us to do things than the, the right wing. Um, what, do you, what do you mean ours don't line up? Give me an example. So, uh, you know, you could look at some academic studies of major Democratic donors or small dollar Democratic donors being well to the left of the average Democrat or the average voter. 
significant number of people voted for Joe Biden more than Donald Trump in this last election. I think there's no debate about that. And yet the Electoral College outcome was determined by an incredibly close number of votes in a few states. A lot of uh, big Republican donors are well to the right of uh, the Republican electorate. Uh, I mean, some people would would debate that, but, um, you know, I I mean, I don't know where the Republican electorate is right now. I mean, that is that is it right? Is it left? Is it just plain crazy? Is it just devoted to one guy? It's obviously a mix. It's but I, I have trouble understanding it right now. Do you understand it right now? I don't understand it as well as I should. I I spend a lot of time trying to understand people who aren't like me. And particularly in in the competition of of elections, you have to know what the other side is doing and thinking. And um, there's there's just a lot of variability on that side right now. It's fueled by both their primary system and uh, the modern media environment, particularly social media. One of the concepts I think about is something called the activist dilemma, where, you know, People have to weigh their ability to get attention for what they care about with the possibility that tactics or strategies that get attention will not actually persuade people to their side. So, for example, in 1998, some people who didn't like uh, development in Vail Ski Area burned down a lodge. And what happened was public outcry and hearings about eco-terrorism and Vail built the lodge back twice as big and the ski area is twice as big. On another side, you could look at John Lewis, who at the March on Washington in 1963, some of the civil rights leaders asked him to pare back his rhetoric about how they would march through the South. Um, and he, he chose to do that. And you know, if you look at where his rhetoric evolved uh, and where he ended, um, talking about human dignity and community and how we all live in one house and it's the world's house. It's fascinating to me to, to think about those arcs and choices. It's not that they're always easy to make, but there's absolutely a, a history of, of people making the wrong choices when they're trying to move the public. What did you make of about the controversy when David Shore tweeted an article about voting and riots in the 60s? I'm sure you followed that. Yes, that's an answer I wasn't prepared to give, but I, you know, in general, I, I'm a believer in nonviolence. <laughs> that is part of the reason that uh, I do U.S. politics. And um, you know, if you think about the metaphors we use in politics, like the great battlefield, that was an example to me of uh, the wrong messenger <laughs> at the wrong time, but probably was the right answer. And, you know, we were doing a lot of research at the time in in states like Mississippi and Alabama um, and trying to understand what was happening that summer. I don't think I need to weigh in too much on on David, David's tweets or career. I have learned a tremendous amount from his Twitter and consider him to be very good at, at what he does. And I have some disagreements, particularly on some of the solutions. But, you know, in general, like, there were some really violent things that happened last summer. Um, a lot of those were actually instigated by people whose ideology is is abhorrent and mostly right wing, but also people who just want to see things burn. Um, and I think there's just a huge difference between a peaceful daytime protest and a nighttime never ending cycle of, of chaos. That's sort of what that academic paper was originally trying to point to by studying when it was raining in the 60s and, and what impact that had on uh, public opinion and protest. 
there's a lot of current debates that we have on the progressive side about how to campaign, how to organize resources, how to apply them. Any of those that you have a strong opinion about that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, considering that I hope you know someone uh, will listen to this, but I'm aware that people will listen to this who, who may not agree with me uh, or, or may actually be working actively against the things I care about. I will share a few of them, but I will also not share all of them. The best phrase I can point to there is probably two, that you got to have like an improv comic because we have to do this dance that I talked about. You got to have yes and solutions. It's not just one thing. It's yes, one thing and another. So if you're spending time trying to mobilize young people or you're donating to the most competitive U.S. Senate race, you might also want to think about how you can help the least competitive House race become more competitive. Or um, I think Tom Steyer set a good model for this, where he built the largest young people organization in American history. We couldn't scrape together two nickels for young people organizing in the early aughts. Uh, but he also mobilized an older constituency around a lawless presidency. Um, I've had the pleasure to work with him and some of the people in the organization um, and, and think that that was a good example of like, yes, and strategy. The other piece is um, in our thinking and in our planning and in our work, it's better to be rugged than to be rigid. Rigid plans are brittle. Rigid strategies can be weak. Um, and, you know, what I mean by being rugged is, is both being tough and being flexible. Another area where I think we are not clear is in like the relationship between the two parties and say the Hispanic vote in certain places in the country, we did much less well as a party in that constituency last time than expected. Any thoughts about our relationship with that group? A lot of thoughts. I spent a lot of, of time and energy trying to understand um, d different people who don't look like me. And uh, because I worked in the West and Florida so much, a lot of that was was working on um, Hispanic and Latino research and programs. One factor we got to remember about 2020 is how strange and unusual it was and that that election took place at one moment in history um, that probably has a few different short and long-term factors leading into it. But you know, we're unlikely to have that exact moment again. We're certain to not have it again. And um, so I think that, you know, what happened in 2020, it's pretty clear that uh, Donald Trump did better than he did in 2016 and uh, better than Mitt Romney did with Hispanic and Latino voters in 2020. And, you know, the causes of that are, are, are multi, but the solution from my point of view is, is we have to go out and work harder. And not assume anything. This goes to like, how do you win Senate elections and how do you uh, build a, a, a movement to protect the constitution from autocracy? To me, it's like, always be persuading. Remember Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glenn Ross, always be closing. We always have to try to be convincing people to either agree with our position or to care about elections. And there's a real false choice between mobilization and persuasion that I think has become pervasive. Persuasion is really hard. We have learned that. It is really hard. It's also incredibly noble. And when it works, it's thrilling. 
if I'm knocking on someone's door and I manage to convince them to care about what I care about and think about voting or changing their vote from one to another, that are some of the best interactions you can have in this system. And I, I worry that too many people think persuasion is, you know, uh, a dirty word or a waste of resources. It's hard because it's critical. And if one side stops doing it, that makes it easier for the other side. I think it's really hard to think about. There's persuasion at the door in the small stuff, the tactical stuff that kind of operatives and people uh, working across the country, people I tend to talk to are doing. Then there's also sort of from the top, right? How is the president selling his program? If I had a problem with Obama and if I maybe have a problem with Biden so far, it's in the attention and knack for selling the big picture and making clear what's at stake to the country. Because if, to me, that moves a lot more people in their opinion than you can by, you know, one at a time going door to door. And I don't know that we've aced that test. The interesting contrast is Trump, who seems to be able to move, at least among his people, a lot of opinions on an issue fairly quickly by hammering it. And whether it's, you know, there was no collusion or stop the steal, I was cheated, he seems to have the ability to get heard and move opinion. How do you think about that kind of persuasion in the large, in the small, in the way that it connects? The right wing in this country, you know, their program is a longstanding alliance between a series of interests that have met up with a fairly unstable leader and a media environment that has dramatically changed. I do think that one of the strengths of Trump's ability to communicate with the public is that he he is not a rigid strategist or thinker or speaker. He explores a lot of opportunities. Now, some people would say that that's not the model to emulate, and I probably agree, but it's important to know where that that strength comes from. He he does not say just one thing and stick to it. So having, you know, a, a popular president in the White House probably necessitates uh, a political program that's successful, a clear distinction between the opposition, the competition, and that party. I think that the events of January 6th should be clarifying for the American public and may not be something that President Biden needs to talk about every day, but there's a real choice there that is different than, you know, marginal tax rates. And um, <laughs> the ability to communicate that choice to the right electorate in an agrarian democracy that is tilted very far afield with diverse voices and limited ability to control the media messaging ecosystem means you need a lot of messages, a lot of messengers. <laughs> and and frankly, the left in this country is, is way behind the right. I think there's something to that example about January 6th. I wonder if there's something that happened there that gives a long-term 
strategic advantage to the Democratic Party if we play it right, like waving the bloody shirt of that over time. That Franklin Roosevelt had certain things he could go back to. The the Republicans after the Civil War had certain things they could go back to that were solid about the definition of that party. And has the Republican Party, by embracing Trump, by now starting to embrace that insurrection, or as we call it, have they, you know, opened that window? Because as much as Trump can sometimes move public opinion, he chooses so many things that are wrong to do it on that he leaves himself open to counterattack, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm in agreement with that. And I, I will say, though, that the challenge of Donald Trump is different than the challenge of Senator Mitch McConnell or whoever is the next Republican majority leader and whenever that happens. And this was part of the liberty I had of, of 2019 and 20, not focusing on Trump as much. Of course, I paid attention and, and was doing things that mattered, but the states did not line up very well with the presidential battleground states in that cycle. When McConnell was shedding a tear on the Senate floor during the impeachment trial, he had already announced that he was going to vote to acquit. And the reason he did that, as far as I can tell, is that if he had voted to convict, he would not have been the leader of that caucus anymore. And he is desperate to become the longest serving Senate majority leader in American history, which could happen in 2023. And so if you count up the votes of the seven courageous Republican senators that went for impeachment with McConnell's lieutenants that just voted for the debt ceiling increase to pay our bills, uh, you get to 66 votes right there. They could have convicted Trump and, and ended his reign in the party and as a president, but McConnell made the choice to try to break the record as majority leader. And so now we have a lot of problems left to solve. <laughs> and, and it's not just about uh, former president. When you said that, like we had the opportunity to take him off the table because you can't run for president after that. Right. Literally, I had like a physical reaction to it. Like, God damn it. You had the chance to take this guy out. You wouldn't have to worry about him and whether or not you'd be majority leader. Can you not put the country over your personal in something that is so acutely dangerous I don't know if that was his calculation. I don't often get into his head successfully. You know, I generally find him to be a pretty loathsome person, but he is, he does seem like a rational person. Why not in that critical moment have done the right thing? Oh my God. It was a strange period in history. And, you know, when I talked earlier about what the return on investment was for the efforts of the Democratic Party to make Chuck Schumer majority leader. You know, a week prior to that impeachment vote, uh, Vice President Harris cast the first tie-breaking vote in the Senate of her her career, the first one for a Democrat since Al Gore did in 1999 to break the ties for background checks at gun shows one month after Columbine. Now, the vote that she led to was the rescue plan, and. You know, you can basically trace what McConnell was willing to do before Georgia with what actually happened. It's about a, a trillion point three dollars. And so, yes, you know, it took a series of miracles and a lot of money, uh, but there's almost no return on investment that's possible. New York Times covered and said food instability went down by 40 percent. Anxiety went down by 20 percent. 
And so I know there's a lot of discussion about what the smartest investments are and, and how to do effective altruism. It took a village and a lot of work, um, but that was a, a pretty exciting moment. And I think it's important that people listening and people working on this keep those things in mind. Right on that point, like I have talked to some of the people who work for some of the wealthy, uh, the billionaires that help fund extra efforts in in 2020, people who really were appalled by Trump, who threw down what was gigantic sums of money to anyone except them. I have a sense that that's not necessarily happening in the run up to 2022 and 2024, at least yet, that people haven't grasped that the severity of the situation persists, that the democratic control is so likely to go away in 2022, at least in the House and quite possibly in the Senate, and how much at risk we are in 2024. What do you think about like our ability to invest properly and, and about these upcoming elections? Um, great question. And I enjoy those kinds of conversations. And, and I think we, we have become very interested in, in measurement, as we should. And we know that there are lots of things we can measure and plenty of things we can't. But there definitely has become this, this school of thinking that I've certainly played a role in, in sharing about efficiency of tactics and interventions. And, you know, famously, um, some of the experiments that came out of, of New Haven um, around door knocking. And, you know, I think like one very broad example is there was a study that, that showed that, you know, yard signs were not necessarily effective. And that wisdom sort of transferred through the ecosystem over several years into yard signs don't vote. And that then became, it doesn't necessarily matter that we're signaling in rural America that there's people who disagree with the right wing. And so, you know, yard signs won't necessarily fix our rural urban polarization problem, but there are some really interesting, smart, cheap ideas to try to intervene there. Um, on a larger scale, there's reasons for optimism and reasons for pessimism about 22 and 24. And there's a ton of smart interventions that can be made in the next few months and in the next couple of years. Um, I'm not at liberty to discuss the full plan, but I can, I can throw a few out there. Let me just do one more concept before I get into any details. This is the concept that has gotten me through a lot of tough times and, and frankly, you know, I read it 20 years ago and was reminded of it last year from a book called Good to Great, written by a business school author in Boulder. He talks about Admiral James Stockdale, who was a prisoner at the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam, and something called the Stockdale Paradox, which I would encourage people to just go, go look up. But essentially, you know, how did you make it out was the question Jim asked to Admiral Stockdale when they were walking around Stanford's campus in the 90s. And who didn't make it? And Stockdale said, well, the, the people who didn't make it out were the optimists. If they thought that we'll be out by Christmas and then Christmas would come around, they weren't out. Easter, well, Easter come around and they were the ones who didn't make it. And so Collins kind of wrote up what he, what he calls this paradox of you need to have a relentless faith that you will prevail in the end while at the same time confronting the brutal facts of your current reality. 
So <laughs> you can look at David Shore's projections in the New York Times about 41 Democrats in the Senate after 2024 in a pretty good evenly split 50-50 election. And you can think, oh, that's bad. We probably should because the senators that replace the current Democratic senators are unlikely to be Mitt Romney types. They'll probably be more like Josh Hawley. And so that to me should be clarifying about the challenge and, and make us think about, all right, maybe there are states that might surprise us, like the only senator who voted against certification that's up in 2022 is from a Southern state that has a Democratic governor and a runoff process in Louisiana. So there's a whole bunch of of tactical and strategic interventions. Obviously, it would help if the U.S. economy is humming, if COVID is managed, um, if there's accountability for January 6th and the events that led up to it. There's a greater than 50% chance of of some of those things happening. Will they happen? Probably not all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, never a dull moment in the kind of work that you do, is there? No. um, You know, I, I... I've realized that like in some strange way, I feel sort of defined by disaster and trauma and tragedy. And if you look at the similarities between the types of disaster responses, people talk about how you're always in a cycle. You're either recovering from a disaster or trying to mitigate or stop disaster, preparing for one that you know is coming or, or responding in the immediate aftermath. So you know, you, you try to find the balance between the art and the science and your head and your heart and <laughs> try to be uh, not so rigid in our thinking is, is kind of where I'm at. Are you optimistic or pessimistic or both? I mean, I think I, I try to be realistic and optimistic. What does this country look like if uh, the former guy gets reelected with 59 senators who are to the right of Mitch McConnell? There's a lot of reason to be scared of that reality. And I don't think it's set in stone that it's going to happen. No, there's a lot of chance and a lot of events that are unpredictable that lie before us. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? Do you want to hear the the secret plan to have a Senate majority for constitutional Democratic Party? Sure. Uh, (laughs) I mean, my only hesitation is around its secrecy, which might be blown. But fortunately, you know, it's unlikely to make it to The New York Times off of this podcast. So Uh, you're probably safe. No, I'm 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 prepared to share it with with (laughs) with my my competitors and my disagreeers. Um, And it's frankly, frankly, not that secret. But I've heard people saying recently, smart analysts and strategists like there is no plan. And, And I think there are definitely uh, groups out there on the left that that are not grappling with how deeply we have to work on this thing. But in simple answer, you know, the Senate's six-year increments, so you got to travel in those and think through not just what's the map look like, because it's really easy to predict what the Senate map is going to look like, except for vacancies and changes and retirements and things that might happen like that, um, which happen all the time. So President Clinton's in the hospital today, as as we record this. And he did a podcast with Carville and Begala earlier this year that's great. People should listen to it. But this is the advice he gives to anyone who wants to get into politics. And it is actually probably the advice to win the Senate majority, which is work hard and meet as many people who aren't like you as possible. You add that with things I've discussed, like always be persuading, 
We have to win more states at the presidential level. Ticket splitting is hard. It's probably higher in a midterm than a presidential level, but um, we need to compete and win in more states at the presidential level. And frankly, we need to do it in smaller population states that aren't as expensive as Florida or Texas. Don't abandon scandal-free incumbents before Labor Day. Uh, Hold the GOP accountable, especially first-term incumbents. Cory Gardner, we spent a decade talking about him in Colorado. I didn't spend as much time working on that because I kind of knew where it was headed in 2020. But um, from the day he was elected, there was a conversation that was had. You know, never let an open seat go uncontested. And so you got to look at Missouri. You got to look at Alabama for 2022 and think through, okay, what would it take and what does it look like? And this is not to say you spend you know, $10 million in a TV ad now and commit to that. But what are the steps you could take to be in a position where that's a good investment later? That is far too secret <laughs> for, for you to have shared. And I'm a little bit appalled that you would blow the cover like that. Yeah. I, I have one other shortcut for people, which is uh, they need to listen to one hour of the pop country music station in their, their area and understand the conversation that's going on there, whether it's the ads or the lyrics, it's fascinating. It is not your parents' country music. And if people don't have time for that, they can go read Eric Church's uh, Rolling Stone interview from 2018. This is a guy who voted for President Bush, Barack Obama, was a Bernie Sanders supporter, and took on the NRA after the Las Vegas shooting. I find that a seat on a Greyhound bus next to just about anybody is a great learning experience. If you'll allow me, I'll tell a story about my grandparents. And if you want to cut it, I'll understand. What story would you like to share about your grandparents then? (laughs) Yes. So, you know, if the, um, if the American rescue plan was a a trillion dollars bigger than it would have been before the Georgia runoffs, um, you know, the fastest way to make a trillion dollars is, is to position the U.S. Treasury to do it. And um, (laughs) uh, my grandfather, who uh, served in the Navy during World War II as an engineer, then went to work at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing in Washington, D.C. During the war, my grandmother was actually in the tire rationing department, a couple seats down from a young man named Richard Nixon, who she described as very pleasant. The first to describe him that way. (laughs) He was not quite who he would become. Um, But so my grandfather was working grad school at nights, Bureau of Engraving in the day, and they were printing up $100,000 treasury bills one day. And in in sort of the end of the shift, you count the bills and count the stack and make sure it matches up with what it's supposed to be. And it was apparently a pretty common thing for the count to be off. And so your choice as an employee was either to stay for the recount, however long that took, or basically to sign for it and say that the government can garnish your wages to make up for what was lost. And so this uh, day that happened to be printing $100,000 treasury bills, my grandfather had to get to grad school. And so he signed for, I I think, you know, a a 10-figure sum to come out of his paychecks to the U.S. government and went to grad school and came back the next day for the shift and they had found the bill and he got to keep the piece of paper, which unfortunately has been lost to history. But that story for me is a funny, quirky anecdote that also speaks to some of the power of the U.S. government and its ability to be a force for good in the modern world. And I think we saw that in 2020 and 2021. And I um, appreciate you letting me tell it. 
you think we can get together and pass something substantial in this next round of big legislation? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. And I don't know that that's going to change the course of, of our politics dramatically over the next year, but I do think that historic investments <laughs> are possible and necessary and will do a lot of good regardless of how the elections work out. Well, it's been very enjoyable to have this time with you, and I hope we can find a time to do it again sometime or uh, visit in person because I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, and anything else you want to say? Yeah, um, uh, people can find me. Uh, you know, I, I'm not much for Twitter, but the DMs are open if you want to get in touch and, and have a solution to some of these problems we've talked about. What's your handle? Uh, D underscore J underscore Winkler. All right, Mr. Winkler. Have a great rest of the day. That was David Winkler. David is at D underscore J underscore Winkler on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. <laughs>